My first kid, who's also called Jack, his because you got a kid called Jack, right? So that's a strong name for firstborns. <laughs> it's a strong name in general, right? One of his first words was Coke, right? We we got this uh, red and white beach ball, you know, it was a Coca Cola branded beach ball, and he just pointed and he goes Coke, and I just looked at my wife. I'm like, oh my god, you know, like how pervasive is this marketing? This is James Schramko. James Schramko here. Welcome back to my podcast. This is episode 1032. Today we're talking about ad marketing strategies. Of course, I've brought along Charlie Valor from valormedia.com. Hello, Charlie. Hey, James. Thanks for having me on again. And before we get started, I just want to say a massive thank you to all the people that reached out after our previous episodes we've done on ads. I've had so many lovely messages and questions. It's been a fun sharing on this topic. It really has been. You know, what would be interesting is to find out what people asked you and then talk about that in a future episode. Would you be down for that? I'm so in for that. Okay, well, there you go. Well, uh, Charlie's uh, putting out the welcome, Matt. If you've got a question for Charlie, ask him and we'll probably cover it in a future episode. And of course, he'll probably cover it with you directly, but I think it could help other people. Strategy. Oh, I had someone actually ask me uh, yesterday. Well, actually, they didn't ask me. They asked on LinkedIn. They said, I want to learn about strategy. Where can I learn this? Someone tagged me. They said, I learned my business strategy stuff from James. And then this guy said, oh, I love James's stuff. James, where do you learn it from? (laughs) And I'm like, this is so funny because everyone always wants to do that. They want to vertically integrate the mentor to the mentor's mentor. But I tell you what, if someone asks me about paid traffic strategies for their business, depending on the type of business, and if they were looking for an agency to help them do that, then Charlie, you'd be the person I would actually say, well, this is the person you should ask. So I'm just going to ask you directly on this podcast. Let's start with, with a bad question first. Charlie, what's the right strategy for an online business? The one that works. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with a better one. How are people currently going about their ad strategies in general? Because you're doing a lot of audits. On a scale of one to 10, where would you rate them? That is a much better question. That was a really high quality question, James. And we have absolutely been doing a ton of audits in recent times and some of them by your members and people you've referred across, which thank you for, I will say. It's uh, good fun. And strategy is often the piece that is missing. I would say the most common thing I come across when I'm reviewing an account is I'll go into an account and just commonly see people, I'm just going to say copying, I'm not even going to say modeling, what the big names in the industry do. So we even joked a little bit before this episode about certain ads that Frank Kern's done, which I'm a big fan of Frank and I love the style of marketing he does. But what often gets forgotten is Frank's been doing it a really long time and has built up so much trust and rapport with his market that he can kind of get away with things that other people can't. Well, specifically, he can say, buy my shit and people will. (laughs) And, you know, this this is a problem for me because I have a more advanced business in terms of time that I've been in it. Some of the things that work for me won't necessarily work for someone who asks me for help. So that's why I need to have a, a catchment of experts, right? I've partnered with you, Charlie, because you're really good at helping people who need something I don't provide. I don't have a paid traffic agency. The last time I had that was almost a decade ago. And I'm definitely out of touch with what you would be doing as a paid traffic agency. So problem number one is that they are just seeing what someone else is doing. 
and then they're copying it. And from what I can tell, there's all sorts of tools you can actually use to see other people's campaigns. Like that, that sort of information is freely available now, right? Even on the platforms. Yeah, completely. And I must say they do a great job of that as well. So, I mean, Meta has the ads library. TikTok has some, and then there's even tools out there that act like an aggregator. Like you can, uh, forgive me, I don't know the name of it off the top of my head. It's like ad research or something. Like market beat or something? Or- Th- things like that. And so you can see what other ads people are running. And the old advertising wisdom was, well, if they've been running an ad for a long time, it must be working. So therefore, it should work for you. But by that logic, I should be able to just run a billboard for my um, business just like Coca-Cola because they've been doing it for as long as I can remember. In fact, it was one of my first kid who's also called Jack. Because you've got a kid called Jack, right? So that's a strong name for firstborns. One, one of his, it's a strong name in general, right? One of his first words was Coke, right? We, we got this uh, red and white beach ball, you know, it was a Coca-Cola branded beach ball. And he just pointed out, he goes, Coke. And I just looked at my wife. I'm like, oh my God, you know, like how pervasive is this marketing? His second word was Beamer, BMW, because that's where I worked when he was born for the first two years of his life. But anyway... By that logic, I could just put up a billboard and promote jamesramco.com, but I don't think that would pan out so well. Well, this is where the nuance is, right? So in this idea, for a lot of people, they will model, I will use that word this time, what certain people in the industry are doing. And the, the common ones I see are Grant Cardone, Frank Kern, or Tony Robbins, right? They'll see one of these names do a certain type of campaign, and then they'll model it into their business and then very likely not experience the results they were hoping for. And the big reason for that is they don't have the brand power. Now, conversely, these tools that are out there to do research on what is running can be fantastic if you're looking into things for businesses that are similar to yours in nature. So I know we use this example on another show, but I'll use it again here is let's say you're a mortgage broker. And I just use that one because it's very common and easy to understand. If you're having a look at uh, what similar mortgage brokers to the type of business you are and even location are doing... Now, that can be really powerful for you to get educated on what they're running so you can come up with a great strategy. But as for just like swipe and deploy, I think that that is a recipe for disaster. And unfortunately, I think there's many agencies out there even running that as their main strategy is just replicating what similar businesses are doing and kind of hope for the best, where I think good strategy requires much more than that. So that's kind of the the nuance of those tools. But then the second degree is, is that someone will, uh, again, potentially use one of these tools or just kind of see it, but I'll use a different example for this one uh, here, James, is where they'll model what other people are doing or come up with a strategy that, let's say, works if you're a high-ticket coach, but then try to apply it if they're a trade business or if they're in e-commerce, where they'll then run that type of campaign and, to the point, won't go very well, runs very differently. And I'd love to use an example on this one as well. If your sink's exploding in your living room and you need a plumber right now, right, you're probably going to open up Google or, you know, maybe some other search engine. You're going to search into that and you're like, plumber, plumber, but you're ready to instantly buy because you've got a problem that needs immediate solving. But if you're an ad agency, if you're a mortgage broker, or if you're in, let's say, a high ticket course model, running that type of ad in your account isn't going to work very well. Like it's very, very much designed that the pathway someone takes really needs to match the type of business you're in as well. So you can see that this gets confusing really quickly, right? You could be modeling a Tony Robbins strategy in a different type of business 
at the wrong time and get very sideways results and then come to the conclusions that ads don't work when it's just the right strategy for your business hasn't been applied here. And again, we see this very, very commonly. This isn't unusual to see in an account. Did a whole episode on this a couple of episodes ago, just about how wrong agencies can get it. I suspect some of them, probably some of them don't care. Probably some of them don't know. Like they might care, but they just don't know. And possibly they're operating on more of a one-size-fits-all operating system that may not really cater for the nuances. I think that's a good term. I've seen where it can go wrong as a consumer. I clicked on uh, some social media the other day, (gasps) gasp, and I got an ad that was like, hey, for your plumbing business or, or something like some pest control business, like they really had targeted me as if I've got a trade business. And I'm not sure exactly if I were to guess it's because I'm looking at four wheel drives because I'd say, well, especially around here, up in the, the Sunshine Coast, every single tradesperson has a four wheel drive ute. It's the number one selling type of vehicle. And I have a couple of that type of vehicle. And uh, as you know, Charlie, we've had many discussions. I'm looking at these things. Possibly I got targeted because of that, but I really felt it was completely relevant to me. So whoever's running that ad, does that mean their targeting's not quite right or they're just having a pot shot? I'll say potentially. And uh, the reason for that is I've actually run some campaigns that would have some more broad targeting like that. So for example, you might say, if you drive a four-wheel drive, the likelihood of you being a tradesperson is higher. Yes. Now, yes, there would absolutely be some mishits in that targeting like yourself, but the returns on the ones they do hit might be so good that we're willing to wear that. Right Now, what I would love to see in a campaign like that, so if someone's got a campaign where they're doing broad targeting and there's going to be a lot of mishits, what they want to make sure they do is that the ad creative themselves filters people out. So if the offer in this case was really focused on trades and you knew it was for trades, well, even if you saw that ad, James, you, you're probably not going to click on it. Because that's where you lose a lot of the result is if it's broad and then broad, but really you just want a small segment of people. I think it was a video ad and I would, you know, the guy was talking about, so I, like I was ready just to um, skip that. And I thought, oh, that's, why are they targeting me? But it's, I can sort of figure out how they might have done that now. Do you deal with trades? Well, this is one of the ones I tend to stay away from in all honesty. You, know? you used to be a tradie, right? Yes, I did. Once upon a time. Plumber back in the day. A plumber. Right. So no exploding sinks around your living room. So, all right. Who do you deal with? Let's get a feel for the type of categories that you have experience with so that if you're talking about these, we know that you know what you're talking about. All right. Well, I'll, I'll express even why I don't deal with trade specifically here. Please. Yeah. The ad industry has changed a lot since I started and I've been uh, playing in ads for nearly 10 years now. And I shouldn't say playing, I've been doing it pretty well and hard, I would say. And as I've gone further into this, there's kind of segments that have formed where it's become very specialized. And I look at that now and I would say that if you're a type of business, you would want to work with the person who specializes in getting results for that type of business. Now, I've seen some of the providers out there, and when I say providers, the ad agencies that just work with trades. And the way they've set up their businesses to be the best solutions for trades is amazing. And when I see that, that's not something I want to compete against because I know they're going to have the ability to get better results than I do in that segment. Well, that's very honest of you to say that because I don't think a lot of agencies would be able to say that. Pride reasons. 
Well, I think I figured out one of the tricks to running a good agency is like if you only take on clients where you have a high degree of certainty that you can get them a great result and you have an edge, well, chances are they're going to stay with you much longer and you're not going to experience churn <laughs> or just really bad experiences. It's horrible if you were to take on a client and not get them a result. It's not what you aim for when you're in this business. I know it, it does happen for agencies and things, you know, a variety of reasons can lead to why a campaign may or may not work. But if you're an ad agency owner or you're someone who runs an agency and you're broadly taking on other campaign categories that there are people who specialize in, of course, you're not going to compete well in them. Just don't see how that goes well. So if the trades are hyper-specialized and you don't generally go for that, and apologies to all our tradies who had it in their heart to get in touch with Charlie, uh, what kind of uh, businesses is your sweet spot? Where are you hyper-specialized? Yeah. So I like to have an edge. I think having an edge in business is very important. So if you go back a year now, I made the call that I think video ads specifically are going to be a really significant edge. And uh, luckily that has paid off. A big reason why we see significantly improved results in the last 12 months, especially has been because we've developed that edge. And then there's two main categories of business that I work for where I apply for it. So one is the finance sector. So mortgage brokers, financial planners, buyers, agents, if it's to do with investments or the finance industry, uh, because of my comprehensive knowledge and interest in the space, we speak the language and understand it, but then we're also quite understanding of what goes into the trust in that space. So just a little, little point here is like the amount of trust you need to hire a plumber to fix your sink, probably not as high as if you're going to you know bet your life savings on it and your retirement. I hope not because when my house got hit by lightning in December last year, it blew out part of my solar panel and I'm recording this in the middle of August the following year and the guy's got the part but he hasn't come out to install it yet. Like I wouldn't want that to be, uh, you know, the same level of seriousness as, uh, you know, missing getting the right mortgage rate on my property or something. The, the ramifications would be significant. <laughs> Well, for the agency that specializes in trades, and I got a, love, a lot of love for the tradies. Like I was one of them. I, like I know my way around a smoke hose shit. <laughs> um, but the point being is he might have little nuances on like when to run ads in the day or particular areas that are better for trades, right? Which I don't have that specialized knowledge. But if you look to, let's say, the finance sector particularly, I know how to apply different things of proof and trust so that you may be the more trusted provider in, in that situation or how to nurture a lead better when it's a longer-term sales process, which will be very different to trades. So finance sector is a really big one. And then the other one I would say is what I would call like the expert B2B education space. So all the course creators out there and high-ticket people or high-ticket niche, that's where we spend a lot of our time also. And again, there's a bit of a similarity there where it's like a bit of a high-trust thing. So again, if you're someone that sells a high-ticket course, so let's say something over $1,000, the thinking and nurturing and things that go into selling that well, very different than what would happen with our trades here in this example. So uh, again, just a little hint for those out there looking to work with that agencies, I would be hunting for those that have a bit of specialization. I wouldn't necessarily go after ones that are broadly offering it because there has become such nuance in these spaces. Well, just what you said there presupposes one aspect, which I think is missing in most cases. You said when you go out looking for an ad agency, I would say the vast majority of people who take on an ad agency are responding to being advertised to. They're being pursued by the ad agency in the first place. And then 
they didn't necessarily go out looking for an agency. The agency tapped on their shoulder and sort of got them interested in through a seduction process of a lead magnet or remarketing campaign, etc. Like the tradie ad agency was targeting me. So that's one thing. Intentionally going out looking for the right supplier is good. You've said finance providers, so that's probably related professional service providers. You've said uh, people do courses, high ticket courses, especially consulting, B2B education. So that's your sweet spot. I do have an interesting question that comes up. And that is, let's say I'm a mortgage broker, right? And I know that Charlie's running ads for mortgage brokers. How do you deal with the potential of a client saying, well, you already run ads for someone else in my market, this conflict or conflict of interest perception? Is it real? Is it imagined? Do you have a policy around this? How does that work? Absolutely. And again, I think it would be dangerous for an agency to work their own conflict of interest into their business. So again, there's a a kind of ways to think about this. Let's say you have several mortgage brokers. You might do it by territory, might be a way to do it. So if you have a mortgage broker, like I've got one now that just operates in Queensland. Gotcha. So for him, it's not a conflict if someone wants to generate some leads in another state or another location. I'm actually doing a lot of mortgage leads in the US as well. So it's not just an Australia thing. We've got like country thing can be a massive thing. Um, Then the second one is size of market. So in one of my spaces, which I I just won't mention this one for privacy because I think it'll everyone will work out who it is too easily, but they are the gorilla in that niche and they're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a month going after that uh, niche. For me, I can't work with anyone else in that niche because I would actually be cannibalizing the results that they get. Now, for me personally, I wouldn't sleep at night knowing that's happening. I don't feel good about that. So I always like to, and I think this has been one of the things that's uh, helped me a lot, is like if you act in the best interest of your clients, generally things go better. Where if you're taking on multiple people in the same niche or trying to resell leads, just from my perspective, I, I just feel that's dangerous because you continually like one of your clients will be at a disservice. The secret source you're putting into one then causes the other not to be at its best. And I just don't like that way of operating. So we do put limits on uh, who we work for. We check with conflicts. And if there was a potential, I'd always check with the client anyway. Yeah, so full disclosure, transparent conversations. I like to think of it as like a multi-lane or multi-modality freeway. And it might have a bike lane on a separate part, but it's the right road heading in the right direction that you want to be on. But the cars are separated from the bicycles. There's a barrier between them, but they're all heading the right direction with the same freeway provider, but they have their clear lanes. You often hear me talking about staying in the lane or not veering into someone else's lane. It does come up for me too occasionally, rarely, but it is something to be aware of. I think that that's important. So what I, I think what I'm getting at is if someone gets in touch with you to do a service, you're going to tell them if you're a good fit or not, and you're also going to tell them if there's, uh, their arch evil nemesis is already engaged with you or not before they decide if they're coming on board. Is that right? Maybe we wouldn't call them their archival nemesis, oh, yeah, but pretty close. <laughs> yeah, but, but, you know, like sometimes this is the thing I've discovered. This is the nuance. Sometimes you may or may not know how emotionally invested or how much competitive nature they have in the marketplace. I've got a couple of uh, clients that I've had at various stages through different programs of mine who are basically just out to get each other. <laughs> it's like... I have to keep them very separated and I generally would only work with one at a time because I know they have strong feelings and it's just easier not to go there. 
I've seen cases where I had no concern or no issue of conflict and raised it with the person already in the program, but the person coming in discovers that there's someone there and they have a, a sort of a set against them for whatever reason, maybe some ancient history you're not aware of. So I think the disclosure thing or the transparency thing is a good idea. So just to recap, if we want to have the right strategy, then that means we need our own strategy. We can't just take someone else's because whatever situation they're in may not be the same as ours. This is why, like when they give out medical advice, you know, this is just for information purposes, consult your doctor, etc. So how they're doing it, they might be doing it, uh, they might see successful campaigns, but the wrong type of category or it's not going to work for them. What other problems have you seen that you've been fixing? All right. So that we, we kind of covered the first one here. Where it's like you've got to match the type of business you're in. So if you're in e-commerce, your strategy is going to be different than if you're in a more lead gen oriented market or if you're a trade, for example, there. I think the second one is you've got to acknowledge the stage of business you're in. So if you're a, a startup and a newer business, and let's just for the sake of this, pretend you have a smaller budget, the strategy that's going to make sense for you on a smaller budget is going to be very, very different than Coca-Cola to bring back our recent example where they're spending hyper amounts. So I would really get people to acknowledge there's a type, but then also a stage that I think is imperatively important to applying it well. And the one that comes up more commonly for me, and this is understanding because we're in the terms of small business, if you're in an industry where you're not the biggest one in there spending the most, you've got to be really selective with the strategy you run because you can't afford to have too much waste compared to a more developed business that might be able to make it up on the back end or might have things in place to re-nurture that you don't necessarily have at this point. So I think that's the second part of strategy that often gets missed is, you know, stage of business there. I think some people are really doing the whole crapshoot. Like they've pulled up at the casino, they've got whatever's in their pocket, and they're going to roll the dice and hope that this ad campaign is going to knock it out of the park. And if they lose, it's like sometimes they get upset with the casino as if it's their fault. Should some people not engage in ad agency at all and perhaps um, wait till they're at a different stage or take a different path? Yeah, now that is a great question in itself. So uh, many marketers will call what you just uh, described as the casino, James, as split testing. (laughs) I just put a lot of stuff up against a wall and hope something works. (laughs) Well, you know the house is usually going to win that game and the house in this case is the platform. They will take the money. I even get, are these real or not, Charlie? But I, every single week or so, I get someone from a meta or Facebook advertising agency internally trying to help us spend more money with them. But I suspect they're kind of engaged to just, they're like those people in the casino who give you a nicer room or indulge you with free meals and drinks and stuff. So, and by the way, all this casino talk, I, I don't go to casinos, so I'm not a gambler. Uh, It's just something that I think people could relate to because we've all seen it in movies. It's not a bad analogy in this case here. So um, one of the interesting things is that uh, I think we have to recognize that Facebook is a business that is there to make money. How they make money is through advertising. The staff they uh, put in place to support you in your campaigns, which is the meta staff from here, are there to get you to spend more money. Let's be real. Now, of course, for them, if you're getting a result from that, that's great. But my finding has been at times that those calls, if you know nothing, they can be really helpful for you technically, like which button to press and things like that. But the part they miss in a big way is what happens after the click. 
So like they're not experts in conversion. They're not copywriters. They don't understand how email marketing works or how an ad might tie into something else. And um, I've had a call with someone where they've uh, been giving me like really good suggestions on how to lower lead cost, not recognizing which campaign actually makes the most sales because they don't have that data. Mm. So in the cases where I've sat there and I've gone, yes, you might be able to lower my lead cost on a campaign that makes no sales, but we want to spend money here because this is where we're winning. So you've got to be really careful. And sometimes people will perceive these meta experts as like business experts or strategy experts when they're just like platform technicians in a big way, much to your idea of what's happening here. So they're tactically focused, but they just may not see the whole strategy picture. Yeah, so uh, let's pretend you and I go to the casino, James, and um, I want to make you look good, so I intentionally lose hands of poker to you, right? So it's like you know, I'm I'm really I'm trying to maybe get a business deal done, or like I'm intentionally losing for the bigger game of our lives. In this example, well, quite easily the casino could come over that and be like, "Oh, we'll help you get better at poker," you know, then you can win. It's like I don't really want to win your game; I'm trying to win my game. Yep. And I think that could be a very dangerous thing that can be misinterpreted. Often the Facebook reps are really nice people and they do have some skills and knowledge, but you've got to be very careful in how you interpret what they're saying. Well, I don't answer them. I just refer them to the people helping me with my campaigns. You know, that's why I'm asking you. So, all right, you've got to, got to pay attention to what stage you're at in business and be very careful that the people that you're getting help from are qualified to help you with that. What other strategy issues have you seen? Yeah. So that, that was a good one, by the way, that, that people can't see the whole strategy. And it's kind of funny because it reminds me of the, the business owner in a lot of cases, their team can't even see this, the vision of the strategy of the actual business owner because they aren't able to communicate it properly. I've had podcasts around that episode too. So there's a lot of this comes around a communication. It's a big part of it. Uh, so I'll throw in the next one here that I think is imperative. For a lot of people, what I would love them to think more about when they're designing the marketing campaigns they do in general, but specifically ads here, is how much trust does it take for someone to make a purchase with you? And we, we touched on this a little bit before with like, if you're, you know, Tony Robbins or Frank Kern, you can be very direct in offers. And you might be someone with an established brand in a market where you can be more direct. But if you don't have that brand premise in a marketplace, I think it's really important to think about how much trust and proof it requires for someone to make a purchase with you. So again, if you're someone who's in high ticket coaching or has a mastermind or in the finance niche, I think you often forget because your surroundings have normalized it, just how big a deal it can be for someone to spend money with you. Like for the person out there where, you know, maybe their business is at a stage where investing in your program is a really big deal for them. Like, and you may go, well, it's it's just another person buying my course. So you don't necessarily see their perspective where that can cause a massive mishit in campaign strategy. So for this, I'll use another example here. Let's say you're a a high ticket coach or you've got a course or program you sell and it's $5,000. Now to you, you've got all these customers you see around, you know, it works, you know, uh, these things, you see the results. It's not a big deal. It's just another $5,000 purchase to you. But to the person making that purchase, it's a really big deal. Now, if you were to think about what you could do to structure a strategy better for them, well, I would want to see more testimonials. I would want to see more proof of this working for other people so that they can trust you a bit more. I would want to see people that I respect you with you getting results for them. Like I would really want to increase the trust on my campaigns so that it would be less, uh, there would be less friction in someone making a purchase or taking more time to develop nurturing so someone can feel that you're the real deal. 
rather than being more treated like the plumber example I shared earlier. Gotcha. You really need to dial into that empathy of, of your target market and do all that potentially difficult hard work stuff. And then you want to, um, I guess this is when you're tapping into people who have already experienced this market and are good at it, they have all the devices ready to elicit that. What is your preparation versus implementation split look like when you're working on these sort of campaigns? That's a really good question. And even in the example I just shared, I would say I have a bit of the curse of experience with this because I know what a lot of these things just generally look like. So when someone comes to work with me, uh, they may have an expectation that, look, we're just going to put up a buy my stuff campaign and it's going to work. Where what's happening for me in these more high trust areas is I'm thinking about, well, I need to make sure this market trusts you in a bigger way so that we can run some of that direct to buy stuff. When I look at it and I've developed, and again, we spoke about the trade example where they're specialized in their market. In my market right now, in the niches I'm strong, I'm quite specialized in the type of campaigns I want to run because I think they have a much more high degree of success. So using the mortgage broker as an example here, if I was working in the finance niche is I'm going to lean into more like testimonials and stories because I think that's going to be a much more powerful way to continually market towards this niche. So I think there's an interesting idea that a lot goes into the preparation, but I also have experience with it. So knowing what type of campaign strategies will do well in certain niches comes with the experience we have, where for someone who isn't necessarily in it, they may spend more time working that out. So someone who's coming on board as a client is basically tapping into your extensive R&D budget. They're tapping into the millions they've already spent on ads to get to a quicker starting point to reduce the risk of failure. Well, if you hire the right agency, that should be one of the biggest advantages is you're getting to leverage all the experience they have with past clients, past split tests, past strategies where they can be more intuitive and also knowing what's going to do better in a space, right? As they can take their previous experience and bring it here. Just like for you, James, I'm sure, like I can only imagine how many agency owners and coaches you've worked with in the last 10 years. Be immense. Well, even longer than that, if you, if you were to say uh, 15 years. A lot. <laughs> a lot of them who went on to be very successful at the top level of their field, really. You know, so many people I could rattle off a lot of names, but some of them have achieved past $10 million for their agency in terms of revenue. Some of them have sold. Some of them ran ads for the White House. Some of them have created their own category. Uh, so, so many. And I do see some patterns. This is the pattern that I see small operator doing something pretty cool, often as an affiliate or to the side or doing something else, but realize they have a talent for ads. Start doing it for other people, way too cheap. People find out about it, they get referrals, it starts getting really busy. They need to increase their rates a bit to slow down the growth a bit because they're now getting strapped. They're generally a bit slow to get off the blocks with the team. They finally get a team and they've got clients and they're charging more and usually something breaks, they dislike the agency for any number of the top 10 reasons, right? This isn't as fun as it used to be when it was just me. I'm not a leader. I don't know how to manage a team. Or the Facebook's banned all of my clients. What do I do now? Like I've seen it all. And often they'll burn it to the ground or they'll partner with someone else who's got the skills or experiences that they're lacking. Or they go through a sort of a crash and burn rebuild cycle three, four, five times. And occasionally some build a big thing and then sell it out and get the end goal and buy themselves an electric guitar and retire. I've seen the gamut. Do you know what the guitar thing is really common? Very common. 
Well, uh, it's fascinating. Gu- guitars <laughs> are common in. Well, they're working from home. A lot of them. They are quite often. I think to run good ads, it's maths and psychology. So you have people who are quite creative. You need creativity for campaigns, for angles, for strategies. A lot of these creatives, especially copywriters, uh, who sometimes drift into the advertising lane, a lot of them play guitars. And so it's a common thread I've seen on so many guitar players. And Frank Kern plays the guitar, of course. Ralph Burns plays the guitar. Kevin Rogers. Like all these people in this field, it's a commonality. So anyway... I think what I see in you, Charlie, is someone who's very strong at systems and people, but also creative and and has a a competitive edge and useful exuberance, but uh, contained in a very mature way as a father, parent, and investor. You do have a, uh, this is the saying I used to get, right? You've got an old head on young shoulders. I think that would categorize you. But also you've got the ability to know what not to go into, (laughs) Right, and, and that's probably part of where we have conversations is where should you go and what, what are the potential outputs and what are the potential downsides. And sometimes it doesn't work, but often it does. But when you find something that works, and this is what my grandfather used to say, make hay while the sun shines. You picked video well. You used to run a recruitment business. You used to have an ad agency. You've had experience running memberships. It's no wonder that you're building a thriving agency around this direction but knowing who your best clients are is good. So what I'm hearing is you've got the right strategy for these finance or service providers, the professionals, the B2B, educators, courses, etc. What I think would be interesting is could you describe a couple of strategies? Just give us a broad brushstroke of what that looks like. What someone arriving on your doorstep likely to get told is a good strategy for them? Oh, that is a great question. Can I add one more mistake before we go there? Go for it. Just one little one. I will just say one of the ones that I've seen in more recent times is the wrong strategy for the business infrastructure. So what I mean by that is that they'll, let's say someone signs up with an agency who specializes in video, but then they won't make video or they don't want to make video. So that could be a really big robust, or maybe they start doing a certain campaign type that requires a sales team, but then they don't want to hire a sales team or they don't have one. That was me. I don't don't want a sales team or setters or closers, so I'm not going to get the benefit of scaling a big campaign to sell mentoring spots, right? I'm going to have to do it a different way. Exactly. So that, that's a really huge one I've come across in more recent times. It's just mismatch of like, you might even have a, what I would consider a good strategy, but just wrong business yep. or wrong, wrong business infrastructure in that one there. So it's not like fault or bad. It's, and look, I'm super aware of this. With lifestyle design, it's about freedom and choice. And the choices that I make result in the outcomes from those choices and it takes a lot of discipline to say I don't want a sales team I don't want sub coaches uh, because I know I'm leaving millions of dollars on the table but Charlie I surf every day so I'm okay with it it's like that was my choice but it just means some options that would be on the table for someone else are not suitable for me so if I go to some mastermind or business event you know or a dinner with a, a peer and they, I did actually, I had a coffee last week with a gentleman who has a lot of affiliates and he does summits and he's doing all these paid traffic things, but I don't want to do the things that he does. So therefore, I need to negate that out of my options checklist. Yeah, well said, James. And I think uh, it's really powerful that you do get to surf every day and it's like it's 
you might look at the millions and think, oh, you know, there's that financial gain there. But uh, the lifestyle loss may not be a good trade for a lot of people. It'd be such a shit trade. Like, like imagine in 10 years from now and I've got an extra $10 million in the bank, but I didn't surf for 10 years. What's the point? Yeah, I wouldn't take that deal. That's what I'd be there. What, what, it's, a, it's a shit deal. It's like the, like the other deal I've seen the influencers do. I'll give you $10 million, but here's the catch. You're 75 years old. Like for most people, if you're not 75 or close to it, it'd be a really bad deal. So that's such an important thing with strategy is, as you pointed out, Charlie, you need to find the right strategy for you, for where your business is up to, for what type of business you have and how you want to do business. And once you dial those things and you get a good provider that's able to actually cater for all of that, what's Charlie recommending for someone to do? All right. So I'll come back and answer this in a, a really powerful way because I think it's important here. So let's say someone comes to Valor Media and they check in with Charlie and it's like, hey, what makes good strategy here? Essentially, it starts with all the stuff we've spoken about here is we need to make sure you're the right type of business, the right stage of business have the right infrastructure, how much trust is required. And then the strategy needs to match up not only with that, but your goals, right? It needs to be back on the idea of what the goal of the actual business is, because you could build a really successful newsletter, but if it doesn't lead to actually converting into the type of clients you want, then that's probably not the right strategy either. Or if you need massive amounts of volume, right? You need hundreds of leads a week, but the strategy you pick is only going to filter in a couple with again, bad strategy. So I, I really like the idea when someone comes to work with us, like what develops a good campaign strategy is identifying all the things we've spoken about in this episode, marrying up that with goals. And then we align that to go, well, in that setup, where have we done well and what matches here? And then when you can match that strategy to the result and then execute that well for the clients, that's where you actually stand on having a good long-term relationship together. I've kind of become more... Um, selective and even the idea of who we'll work with because if something doesn't fit that cater I just know that the likelihood of it going well or lasting long term isn't there and I would much rather tell someone that up front so they can find someone that is the right match for them or give them some hints on what would make them the right match for us if they do want to go that way so that they can experience a much better result when it comes to running ads. So assuming that they're a good fit what's a playbook what's in your agency playbook can you uh, give me an example of what you mean by that, James? Because I'm like, I want to make sure I, I execute this well, because I feel like there's something you're hunting for in that question. hundred percent. Like we've talked a lot about strategy, but we haven't shared an actual strategy. We've only talked about choosing the right strategy. So I want something, let's say that I have a thousand dollar per month program. Let's say it's $12,000 a year. What would be a strategy if I was to fit your perfect client type, I, if I had a sales team or whatever else, that would be a requirement that I've, I'm in your lane, I'm the right sort of client, what would you recommend that I'm doing? What would you be doing for me as an agency? Oh, fantastic. Let's go there. I'll go deeper into some of these. So I'll go into some finance ones and then we'll do some high ticket ones perfect. or some more education ones. We'll, we'll jump it into the two. My favorite types of strategies at the moment, if you're in the finance space, is to get a lead to come into a business with the intent of being reviewed. I think the review strategy overall is a great way to do it right now. So if you're, let's say you're a buyer's agent, if you want someone to review your portfolio and make recommendations, I think that's a fantastic way to do it. So the strategy I'm building out is going to be, I'm going to use video ads 
and I'm uh, likely going to use a VSL to go through and help someone understand why they need to get a review done. And I think a really powerful framing at the moment is doubt. So much has changed in the world, right, in the last few years that I think it's left a lot of people feeling uncertain if they're actually got the right investments for them or potentially the right things to lead to the outcomes. So if someone doubts that they've got the right thing, then they're much more likely to come in and have a review. And I think that applies to the finance sector in a really, really big way. So if you're in finance as a whole, I'm loving video because it enhances trust. I'm loving VSLs because it gives you a chance to explain yourself in a really powerful way and also help people understand why you're different or how you can help. And then I'm loving the review type thing. So I think that's a massive one for the finance space. I also quite love if you're in the finance space is the newsletter strategy where you're building a list and you're nurturing that list and then eventually bringing them in. And I've just found particularly in finance that there's this interesting thing with like the duration of a lead in the system and the quality of that lead. Like people who stalk you for a little bit tend to, when they do come up and want to review or to get engaged with your business, end up tendency being better clients. That, that is something I've found. So if you're uh, slower to bring them on, they're sort of maturing like a fine wine. That is the tendency I'm finding right now. I think that's a, a really, really powerful one. It's definitely descriptive of my marketing. When, when people come on board, they seem quite familiar with my podcast and me and my book, et cetera, and they're ready. Something I've said or something in life has triggered them to say, today is the day that I'm going to get help from James to solve all my problems. I'm sick of trying to do it all by myself. Who knows, maybe it could work because it seems to be working for all the other people he's had on the podcast, et cetera. So it would be good to orchestrate that and to have some definition on it. I imagine you're looking at all sorts of analytics and remarketing audiences and all these things to move people into that catchment. Yeah, so I mean, we can go deeper into this. I know this episode may be running a touch long, but um, I will say here, one of my favorite things to do in finance is just remarketing people like the target audience getting the result. The more proof you can provide in that experience, the more likelihood people that will believe you. I think that's huge. The only caveat I make in the finance space that kind of separates it from uh, some of the other spaces, which we'll talk about here, is that the tendency is that when someone has a problem with their mortgage or with their uh, superannuation or something like that, they want it solved and then they don't really want to follow along with it again. It's like when they have the problem and they have the review, but then it's solved, they don't really want to know about it after that. So I think the tendency is that things like podcasts can be a a less effective strategy if you're a mortgage broker, because once someone has their mortgage, they're not going to hang around to, you know, oh, what's the next mortgage strategy? Yeah. Like it's not a hobby niche in the same way. So it's more of an emergency thing. Yeah. So when we flip that into um, now, I'll talk about like B2B. So I think in a lot of cases in B2B, and I think of people like yourself that fit into that is you've got a a really powerful advantage where people will subscribe to a podcast or a YouTube channel and actually follow it. So I think what's really powerful there is the promotion of content can be very, very different versus the finance sector in this example. Or I'll use the trade example, like uh, unless you need the plumber, like you don't really want to know them. No, no, you, you go looking for it. Yeah. So what I love in the expert space at the, at the moment is when you would look at like, you can be more selective in sharing like tips or you can be more selective in sharing the things and bringing them on that journey with you, which I think is fantastic. Really, really powerful. Differently in strategy though, I would say, because I would, I love much more content and brand promotion in this space. I think it's a stronger strategy. And then I like to convert from the email list 
or actually from a sales team. We're finding in the people we work with in this space that the sales team of going to setters and salespeople, which we've spoken about in another episode, very effective right now. The clients we see doing the best are absolutely incorporating some of that. So email is a heavy lifter for that type of campaign. Do you know how many times I've thought email is dead only for it to find that it just keeps hanging in there as the high performer, isn't it? I know it is um, absolutely critical. So yeah, no, no doubt about it. Well, Charlie, um, thank you. I think just to recap, you have to have your own strategy. You have to make sure it's for the right stage of where you're at in business, the resources that you're prepared to put, that the person you're getting help from actually knows this market and has got some experience with it and feels confident with it. And that you probably have to set pretty clear indicators as to what it is that you're trying to do. And then other people who are trying to interject, like the platform people, they may not see the whole strategy. So you need to just factor that into when uh, they're coming to give you advice. Absolutely, James. We'll put up the show notes at uh, 1032, episode 1032. Uh, I've been chatting with Charlie from valamedia.com and uh, always a pleasure. I think we'll talk next time about what sort of things you're seeing when you review or audit. We'll, of course, anonymize it or what sort of questions you're getting that might be typical of someone in the same situation as, as where you're helping them. Yeah, that'd be awesome, James. Thank you. This is James Schramko. 